Well, let me ask you a question as we begin this series brand new today. When was the last time that you started something brand new? And maybe, let me clarify, when was the last time you started something brand new and it didn't go particularly well at first? My most recent new thing that didn't work out well uh, was about a year and a half ago. Uh, it was November 2020 and I had thrown my back out badly right before Thanksgiving. And so after Thanksgiving, uh, after the holiday was over, I got in touch with a, with a chiropractor's office here in town and I started the process of, of, of getting my back fixed up, of, of working with a chiropractor to get my back fixed up and started, you know, got on got on the schedule, got an appointment, got into the office. And this, this was new to me. I had done some work with a chiropractor in high school uh, to do some therapy on a badly sprained ankle. Um, I had a friend in chiropractic school in college who gave me a neck adjustment one time while I was on a trip for a wedding. But I've never visited a chiropractor's office for a full adjustment or for anything related to my back. Anyway, so I go in, they do all the measurements, they do all the x-rays, they do all the stuff they do when you're starting up for a new patient. They did the electrode therapy that makes your leg twitch uncontrollably. If you've never experienced that, you should do it just to freak yourself out. And then it was time to see the doctor and get my first adjustment. So I get on the table and the doctor tells me to lay on my back and he works on my neck a little bit. And then he tells me to roll over onto my stomach and he does some stuff on my lower back and on my upper back and I'm around my shoulders. And then he tells me, okay, I want you to roll over onto your side. I'm going to work on your side adjustment. And so I rolled over onto my side and he said to put my legs just a little bit off, like a bent with a little bit off the table. And he went and he pushed down on my leg and I fell off the table. <laughs> like, like I just fell off the table, which is an embarrassing thing to have happen. The doctor was just as embarrassed. He's, he's like apologizing profusely for, 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 oh my gosh, I should have told you and clarified how you're supposed to lay on the table, how you're supposed to lay down. And I was like, if you have to clarify for me how to lay down, I'm apparently not very good at this. And it was crazy. Like I'm sitting there like cracking up and crying on the floor because a grown man just pushed me to the floor. And the doctor goes to grab my hand and he's apologizing, he's apologizing profusely. And I said, it's okay, doc. But normally I, let, I want someone to buy me dinner before I let them throw me off of a table, you know, spin me off of a table which I thought was hilarious. I thought it was so, so, so funny. And at that moment, my chiropractor looked at me while holding my hand and pulling me up off the table and said, wait, what? As, as if I had just spoken a foreign language. And in that moment, I knew that I had failed at two things in this brand new venture. The first thing that I had failed at was I failed at laying down on a table, which was something that I didn't know that you could lay down on or that you could fail at, but I failed at and I failed miserably. And the second thing that I had failed at was I failed at finding a chiropractor who would appreciate my humor and appreciate my jokes. And so that one's on me. Well, today we begin a brand new series called, you guessed it, Brand new, called brand new, because sometimes you run out of creative titles and you've just got to go with the untitled, un uncreative titles. S kidding, sort of. Um, just over six years ago, just over six years ago, we started this brand new church called Movement Church. And if you've ever wondered, like, why would someone start another church? I think that's actually a great question. I want to answer that question. The answer for us was that we didn't want to start another church. We wanted to start a different kind of of church. We wanted to be a church to help people who said no to traditional church say yes to God through a new kind 
of church. We want to do more creativity. We want to do more upbeat and current musical style. If you've been to our, to our in-person services, probably louder music than a lot of churches have. A lot of traditional churches have shorter sermons sometimes. No dress code. I mean, we do have a, a dress code. Our dress code is please wear something. Like that's, that's you know, that's the low bar of, of dress code in our church. But at our church, this is, I mean, like, and a lot of churches have moved in this direction. No one has to wear a suit and tie ever. And you can choose to, but no one has to wear a suit and tie. And ladies, no one has to wear a dress and high heels. I mean, like some of you, like if you've ever been to our church, if you've been in person, you're like, amen, hallelujah, did not have to dress up. I was very specific with our kids team as we began that I wanted our, our, our environments to be safe because that's important for, ch- for children. I wanted to be a lot of Jesus, but I told them that equally to, to those two things, I want it safe. I want it a lot of Jesus and I want it to be incredibly fun for kids because there is nothing worse than taking than taking the stories of the Bible, which are so exciting and so compelling and so amazing and so amazing what Jesus and what God has done for us through Jesus. It's so amazing. The worst thing that we could do is to take kids and put them in an environment and make those stories unappealing because it's no fun. I said, we want it to be a lot of fun. We consciously and intentionally made the decision to leave behind a lot of old-fashioned things about a church experience that I think have held churches back for a long, long time. But then it hit me about two years into that, that if we weren't careful, what we would do would be what so many churches have done, that we would make everything more modern, everything more relevant, everything more fashionable, everything more 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 trendy, but we would be still holding on to a mindset and a model of Christianity that keeps us from seeing everything God wants from us and experiencing everything he wants for us. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth. The church often holds on to things that hold us back. The church often holds on to things that hold us back. And if I could make that a little more personal, Christians often hold on to things that hold us back. That there is something in us as people and something in us as Christians and something in us as churches that we retreat to the familiar and the comfortable, whether the familiar or the comfortable is actually a good thing or a right thing or the thing that God actually wants for us. And un- unfortunately, in the church, we have held on to and clung to and reintroduced some old things and some old models and some old mindsets. And we've trended them up and we've made them more current. We've made them seem more relevant. We've made them more fashionable. But we've held on to things that should have never been a part of this new thing called the church that have made the new thing that made this, this the church very resistible to people who want to connect with their heavenly Father. But here's another truth that we're going to discover and that we're going to lean into for the next few weeks, and I hope it sets some of us free. Most of the things people resist about the church are things that the church should resist. Most of the things people resist about the church are things the church should be resisting. See, when you look at what Jesus taught, how Jesus lived, and the community that the early church formed as they put into practice what Jesus taught, what you see is something so special and so amazing. The world couldn't resist it, and the world didn't resist it. What the early church displayed was so much better than what the world had to offer. People chose Jesus and chose Jesus' church like crazy. I mean, when you look from an outside perspective, here's what the church should be known as. The church should be known as a community of people who follow the teaching of a man sent from God to explain God and to clear the path to God. Who would resist that? 
Like, who would actually resist that? Who would have much negative to say about those people who are trying to follow the teachings of this, of this, person, of this person that came from God to explain God and to clear the path to God and to tell us how to follow, follow God? I mean, like, who would really have that, if, if that's all we did, if that's what we lived for, who would really have all that much negative to say about the group of people doing that? We certainly didn't become resistible by following Jesus' commands too much. I mean, because when you look at Jesus' primary commands, it's love God, love your neighbor, and you should even love your enemy. Like, like again, no one's, no one's protesting the church. No one's, no one's canceling the church. No one's opposing the church if the church is like, man, we, like, well, I, I, just, I just can't see in how much they love their neighbors. Ugh, it just makes me so mad. Ugh. And the, 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 like, they even love their enemies. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh, it just makes me so mad. There should be nothing resistible about a group of people who are actively putting into practice these primary things that Jesus commanded us to do, to love God, to love our neighbor, and to love our enemies. There's nothing to resist about that. The only thing that should actually be resistible about Christianity is our allegiance to Jesus, our unwavering belief that he was the Son of God come to earth, and our stubborn belief that he died for our sins and he rose again. That's the only thing people should actually have an issue with. No one should have an issue with what the church is doing because the church should be loving our neighbors, should be loving our God, should be loving even our enemies, even those who oppose. Like, that's what the church should be about. That's what it it should be known for. And wouldn't it be cool if people had nothing negative to say about Christians or nothing negative to say about the church, except, man, we just think that Jesus is God and that bothers me so much. And yet when I talk to her, when you talk to people who have walked away from faith or refuse to be part of a church or want nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the church, you don't hear that. You don't hear people say like, man, the church is so great. You're all about love. You're all about loving people. You're all about loving God. You're all about loving your neighbor. But I just don't believe that, like, no, no one really actually says that. When you talk to people, I, and, and I talk to people, I have heard hundreds of other reasons that people resist the church and stay away from the church, and it's never been that we just believe too much in Jesus or that we just follow too closely what Jesus told us to do. So here's the question. How did the church become so resistible while following an irresistible Savior? How did the church become so resistible while following an irresistible Savior? And here's what we're going to discover together. Here's the answer to that question. Here's how the church became so resistible. The church didn't become resistible because of new things that we added in, but because of old things that got added back in. The church didn't become resistible because of new things being added. The church became resistible because of old things that were never supposed to be a part of this new thing that got added back in. See, as I began to think about this a few years ago, and as I began to talk to some of my, some of my friends in, in ministry and some of my friends who, who are followers of Jesus Christ, we came to talk about some of these old things and these old models and these old mindsets and that, are, that are hard to let go of and that we've brought back into this thing that were never supposed to be part of this thing. We were started referring to them as a temple model. As, as the temple model. It goes all, the temple model is really interesting. It goes all the way back. It's, it's almost part of human nature in us to want to do this, which is, I think, why we brought it, brought it into this new thing, what was never supposed to belong in this new thing. It goes all the way back to Egypt, to Assyria, to ancient Israel, to Babylon, to Greece. And here's what's true of, 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 the, of the temple model and the temple mindset. In the temple mindset and the temple model, there's always a sacred place 
There's somewhere that you pray to. There's somewhere you go to. There's somewhere that you go to offer sacrifices. It's either actually a physical temple or it's a, a house or a location or a church building. It's, it's a sacred place. It's a sacred text. There's, there's, there's sacred text that only few people understand and, and, and normal people can't possibly understand it. So we have to have it explained to us by sacred men. And it's always men. It's always men. It is always men, sacred men who, who, who can understand or twist the, sa the sacred scriptures, the sacred text, to make sure that, they, that, that their agenda and that their, their belief gets pushed, into the, in, in, pushed onto the sincere followers. You could say superstitious followers. You could say a lot of different words about this, but I wanted to make sure they all started with S. That It's a sacred place, there's a sacred text, there's sacred men, and there's sa sincere or superstitious followers. Again, this goes way, way, way back to the ancient world. And for our biblical study purposes, the temple in ancient Israel really helps us to understand the temple model and the temple mindset. But here's the thing. The temple model is also very much alive around the world today. If you were to travel around the world, if you were to travel around the world, and if you were to find find some places that would be referred to as as mud hut areas of the world, where where there's little villages and there's mud huts and there's not housing, a lot of times in these areas of the world, you have these witch doctors. You have witch doctors, and these witch doctors. What what's what's a, a community that revolves around a witch doctor other than a temple thinking, other than thinking of the temple in a temple mindset and with a temple model? Because there's a, a sacred person. It's always a man. There's a sacred person. They have some text or some, some, something written down that they understand and only they understand and only they can explain to people to help solve the problems that they're facing or, or help the crops grow better or help bring, bring about a, you know, healing to something that they, 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 they understand the text so they can explain it to the sincere or the scared followers, the superstitious followers, and they have their hut, which is the sacred place and people are afraid of it and people approach you know, very carefully. That, that, that this model is alive in those places all around the world today. It's also alive in more modernized places where people pray toward a specific place because they believe the place has power, where men make up rules and regulations to control other people, and where men twist texts that only they can understand to convince people to go to war and to commit acts of terrorism to bring their God glory. Unfortunately, it is no stretch to say that the temple model and the temple mindset is alive and active and unwell in the world today. Unfortunately, it is no stretch to say that the temple model and mindset is alive and unwell in local churches as well today. And I say unfortunate because this mindset and this model was something that was never supposed to be a part of the Jesus movement or the community of people following Jesus. And the reason that I would say that this is so alive and so active and so unwell in the church today, I mean, when you think about it, I think the biggest picture that all of us have recently of, of what it looks like that the temple model and the temple mindset is alive and active and unwell in the church is, is it was highlighted and is still being highlighted in our world so much because of the pandemic. So, I mean, like, th think about this. Two years ago, when churches couldn't hold in-person gatherings for a while, some churches and some Christians absolutely lost their mind because the special place of church wasn't available for a few weeks. The special place wasn't available. And every church spent tons of energy and resources, including our church. So I'm not pointing any fingers here at, 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 at other people without pointing it at ourselves. It's tons of energy and resources figuring out how to get the special person, me, uh, to, 
onto screens and into homes so we could explain the sacred text with our valuable insight and with our amazing insight that, you know, to explain to our sincere followers, you, our sincere followers, who just needed our sermon so desperately because you couldn't know how to follow Jesus without us sarcasm i like like isn't like isn't that true that like and as churches and then as churches reopened so many pastors got wildly upset at people who weren't coming back to the special place to hear their special interpretations of the special text by the special person because the temple model is alive and unwell today this is how so many of us think. This is how so many of us approach God. This is, this is the mindset and the model that so many of us have lived with because unfortunately, this thing that was so part of our, 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 our culture, so part of our DNA, so part of how we're wired, we brought it into this thing that was never meant to be the, part, of, part of the new thing that Jesus did in the first place because the arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new for everyone, everywhere, for all of time. Let me say that again just to make sure that this really sinks in. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new for everyone, everywhere, for all of time. Here's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to introduce something entirely new, something brand new in the world for the world, something in the world for every man, every woman, everywhere for all of time. With Jesus, there are no more sacred places. Jesus taught and his followers believed that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is sacred. Jesus taught that the person beside you is more sacred than any piece of land and any piece of dirt anywhere in the world. No more sacred places. With Jesus, there'd be no more sacred people. Never again someone would have to intercede for you other than Jesus interceding before your Father in heaven. Never again would you have to confess your sins to a priest or to a pastor or make sacrifices before a priest or a pastor in order to atone for your sins because we confess our sins one to another and our sin has been atoned for by our Savior in heaven. Never again would someone have to explain scripture to you because he came to be the teacher. With Jesus, there would be no more sacred law. All of it would be fulfilled with a single verb. And here's what's so amazing about this. Here's what's so amazing about this. Jesus ultimately came to replace the temple model with himself. Jesus came to replace the temple model by himself with himself. And here's how he did it. First thing we need to actually know about this is that Jesus instituted a new people, not a place. Jesus instituted a new people, not a place. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Or who do people say I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? You've seen me. You've heard me. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Matter of fact, right now, would you type this in the chat bar or in the comment section? Would you type CHURCH? You can do it all caps. You can do it lower caps. You can do it however you like. CHURCH. Just type it in the caps. And wherever you are, would you say this with me on the count of three? Ready? One, two, three. CHURCH. 
Now, what's so interesting about this word church is the word church doesn't match up really well to the original word that Jesus used and was used when this was written in Greek. When the the church is is a translation from a translation from a translation and multiple languages got involved and there was a word that stuck that should have never gotten used. There was a word that was used in in the middle of the the medieval times by by German translators because they wanted to refer to the house of God. And so they chose the word kirch. It's a German word, kirch, which sounds a lot like our word church. Yes. And kirch is German for the house of God. It's a special place. It's a special place. It's where God dwells and where people have to come to visit God. It's a house of God. The actual Greek word that's used for church actually comes a lot more close to the Spanish word that a lot of us would be familiar with, iglesia, because the Greek word is ekklesia. Ecclesia, it's a which means a called out assembly or congregation. Notice in ecclesia there is no reference to a place, only to a people. According to Jesus, the church is not a building. The church is a people. The church is not a building. The church is a people. A group of people who have been called out of the ways of the world to follow the ways of Jesus and accomplish his will and his purposes and live his way here on the earth for as long as we have the opportunity to do so. The way Jesus talked about it, the place was not special. The people would be special because of the way they live and the purpose they fulfill here on the earth. A place would not contain the presence of God, but wherever two or more are gathered in his name, the presence of God would be there. And here's an amazing truth to remember that we need to remember in light of everything that we have lived through in the last two years. You can lock the doors of a church. You can't stop an ecclesia. You can lock the doors of a church. You can't stop an ecclesia. You can take away a location, but you can't stop the movement. Jesus instituted a new people, not a new place. Jesus also instituted a new covenant. And that word covenant means a new relationship, not a new religion. A new relationship, not a new religion. In Luke chapter 22, verse 9, starting verse 19, tells us this. He took some bread, Jesus took some bread, and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Jesus told his followers, I am establishing a new covenant. And when a new covenant comes into being, it means the old one is going away. Covenant essentially means the terms of the relationship. Like anytime you get a software update on your phone, you do the terms of the, the terms of agreement. That's the effect. That's the effect. It's the relationship you have with Apple. Jesus said, I've come to, to set new rules for the relationship between you and your heavenly Father, the old is giving way to Jesus' new way. These people had lived their entire lives. Israel had lived for 1,500 years under the old covenant with its sacrifices and ceremonies and standards and rules and regulations and consequences. And Jesus said this. He said, you have lived in fear and trembling and struggling and striving, hoping that your behavior can measure up to please God. I have come to measure up for you. 
and to please God on your behalf, establishing a new covenant that will not be about your actions and your efforts, but will be about my sinless body broken for you and my perfect blood shed for you. And that's how the relationship begins. And that's the terms of the agreement with your heavenly father that it really comes down to what have you done with Jesus? Have you accepted his body broken for you and his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins? In starting a new covenant, Jesus gave new meaning to holy days. Jesus gave new meaning to holy days. I don't, I don't know if we can really fully understand how self-absorbed this was for Jesus to do and to say this. This is at the Last Supper. Jesus is, as the disciples think they are gathering for the Passover. Jesus takes the Passover, the holiest day, the most sacred day in the Jewish calendar, and he flips it upside down, and he says, the holiest day that you think is all about what happened in history, it's about me now. It's about me now. For these people, for 1,500 years, they lived celebrating this day and commemorating this day because this was the day where Moses showed up and where God passed over the nation of Israel while giving the plague of the first, on, the place, on the firstborn son and sons of Egypt, that God delivered his people, that God freed his people, that this was the beginning of a brand new nation and the calling out of this special nation and God, God referring to Israel as his chosen people. Like This was the most special thing that had happened in the entire history of the nation of Israel. And Jesus Jesus looks at his 12 guys in the room and he says, it's about me now. It's, it is no longer about what happened in history. It will be about what I am about to do in history that will change people for the rest of time. It is not about freeing, freeing an entire nation it, you know, through, through the shedding of blood. It will be about the shedding of my blood for the forgiveness of your sins and for the forgiveness of every person who will ever walk the earth so they can be connected with their heavenly father if they receive my grace. I mean, to, to put it into perspective, this would be like, I, again, if, if like you know, we're, we're coming up on Easter, and, and Easter is in Christianity, maybe, maybe our most, you know, like we look towards a, ho- a holy day, like, wow, this is a day we all look forward to. We all know what Easter is about. And this would be like if Billy Graham, he passed away a few years ago, this would be like if Dr. Billy Graham, before he passed away, he put in his will, and he, and he passed away, and when his will was open, he had a request at the top that said, hey, I just want to let you know. That, I, that because of all that I've done to spread the, the gospel of Jesus all over the United States and all over the world, I would like for Easter to now be known as Billy Graham Day. Like we would all kind of look at and go, yeah, we're really appreciative, you know, Billy Graham, about, for everything that, was, that you did, but Easter is about Jesus. There are certain days we would all kind of go like, you don't mess with that day. And Jesus messed with that day. He said, that day, it's not about what you think it's about anymore. It's not about what you've practiced for 1,500 years. It's about me, and it's about what I'm about to do for you and for everyone, everywhere, for all of time. It's no longer about the, the temple. It's no longer about that thing. It's about a brand new thing. In doing so, Jesus also instituted a new system. Instead of animal sacrifice, animal sacrifice would be replaced for all and forever by Jesus' personal sacrifice. No more filling up a sin bucket and then taking a sheep or a goat or a dove to the temple as an offering to make up for your sin and bring you back into right standing with God. From now on, the sacrifice to bring you and to bring me into right standing with God has been made, and we live from a place of forgiveness and grace and peace in relationship with our Heavenly Father that has been bought for us, that we can't bring something to offer. We can only accept what has been offered for us. Jesus himself brought new significance to sacred texts. 
Jesus himself brought new significance to sacred text. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said this. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, all the Old Testament, the Old Covenant things. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But to fulfill them. Jesus said that he himself had and he would fulfill everything that the law required and that the prophets foretold. There would be no law he would not keep and no promise he would not fulfill. He would do what no one had done and what no one could do. And the implication of Jesus was not that since, since I, you know, some of us have thought, well, I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. Some of you have been taught. See, this means Jesus was saying that he wasn't coming to do away with it. What this actually means is Jesus came to fulfill it so that this era could be brought to a close. All of, the fulfill, all of the requirements of the law fulfilled and a new era began. All of the requirements of, of, the, being, of the ceremonially clean, cleanliness standards fulfilled in Jesus. There was no law he did not uphold and there was no promise he did not fulfill. Everything that was foretold was, was fulfilled in him. Everything that was required was fulfilled in him. And when it was required and when it was fulfilled, a new era began. And Jesus finally instituted a new command. At the same meal as, as, where, he, as where he brought new meaning to, to sacred days, here's what Jesus did. Jesus finally instituted a new command. Not a list of rules, not a list of laws, but a single command. A single command. In John th- chapter 13, this is recorded. A new command I give you, love one another. Which everyone hearing you go like, I've heard that one before. That's not new. He said, I wasn't done. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And in that moment, every one of them begins to think like, oh man, I, I know how he's loved us. He just, he just humbled himself and washed our feet. He's provided for us every step of the way. He's shown so much grace and so much patience. And he's saying, that's what we're supposed to do for one another? That's our command? That's our marching orders? Yeah, in Jesus's brand new thing, we have one command. We do not have 613 laws and 613 rules. We have one, and the law is love. The law is love. Jesus did for them what none of them would have done for each other. You will. Ne- Jesus said to them, you will never be greater than, than your master. I'm your master, and I humbled myself, and I washed your feet. Jesus turned the whole leadership par- paradigm upside down. Sacred people wash feet. Sacred people are not afraid to get dirty. Sacred people get dirty for the benefit of those that they love. Sacred people show love. Sacred people are willing to humiliate and to humble themselves if that's what it takes to show love to someone else. From now on, the vertical, our connection with God, would be measured by the horizontal, our relationship with other people. According to Jesus, if you're at the temple offering a sacrifice and you remember that there's a problem that you have with your brother, leave the sacrifice and go Go take care of that because you can't be right with God while you're wrong with someone else. Like that's what Jesus said, that he gave us a new command and he gave us new explanations of how detailed he wanted us to put that into practice. The single command of Jesus is to love. Here's what's amazing about what Jesus did. In everything Jesus did and said, Jesus attached the whole thing to himself. 
Jesus attached this whole brand new thing that he came to institute and to bring into the world. He attached it all to himself. All of the special days now point to Jesus. All the sacred texts now point to Jesus. All the rules and the laws fulfilled in him and the whole religious system attached to his sacrifice and to himself. And the only command ties back to him and his example. Here's the bottom line, and here's what I want to make sure we understand as we begin this series and as we step into this series. Following Jesus is not a continuation or a twist of something old. Following Jesus is something entirely new. Following Jesus is not religion 2.0. This isn't Judaism 2.0. This isn't law and prophets 2.0. This isn't temple 201. This is something the world had never before seen and never will see outside of Jesus. And it was so beautiful and so good and so brand new that when the early church put the Jesus way into practice, it was so beautiful that in the course of 300 years, it had reached the entire world and so many people had come to faith in Jesus and had come to be part of the Jesus movement that it had changed the entire world. Because In Jesus, connection to God became more simple than anyone could think. It was, while it was more difficult than anyone would expect, it was more clear than anyone could hope, and it was more personal than anyone could imagine. That's what Jesus did. He established a connection with God that was all of those things. And in just in case you need me to say it again while it's on screen, Jesus, in Jesus' connection to God became more simple than anyone could think, more difficult than anyone would expect, more clear than anyone could hope, and more personal than anyone could imagine. You want simple? There's one command. That's how simple this is. That's how, that's how unmistakably clear it is. That's how simple it is. There is one command. It's not easy. Actually following Jesus is way more difficult than we have made it where it's all about believing right. We have a crystal clear example from the one who came to make clear what our Heavenly Father is like. And most important, it's more personal than any religion would dare to claim. The whole system is Jesus. You could say there's no system. There's just a person. And you can't manipulate a a person like you can a system. You can't find loopholes in a person and in his example like you can find in a system. There are no loopholes. That's why it's harder than than, than than we've made it out to be. There is no system that we can gain. That's why it's more difficult than we've created it to be. It's only Jesus. He's the whole system. All the laws and the rules and the promises fulfilled in Jesus. The one command tied to Jesus' example. This new people, they find their identity. We find our identity primarily in Jesus because the new covenant relationship between humanity and heaven, it hangs on Jesus. Here's the bottom line. Here's how we're closing out today. Jesus closed the door on the old way. And he has invited you and he has invited me into a brand new and living way of connecting with our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus did. That's the brand new. It's brand new. It's it's nothing like the things that the world had experienced. It's taking all of the stuff of the temple model and the temple mindset and saying this worked for a while, but it has come to a close. Now I have come to do the new thing that connects you to your Heavenly Father once and for all. It's a brand new, it's a living way.
It's a brand new and it's a living way. And if that doesn't sound like your experience of religion and Jesus and his church, if it's not more clear than you ever thought, if it's not more simple than you ever thought, if it's not actually a little bit harder than you actually thought, and if it doesn't actually, it's not more personal than you ever thought, if that doesn't describe your experience with Jesus and your experience with religion and your experience with his church, then it's time for the sake of you and the sake of your family and the sake of our city and the sake of our whole world that we step back from the old things that we carried along with us so we can fully embrace and live the new way that Jesus has invited us into and live the way that Jesus has invited us to live. And if you want to learn how to do that, make sure you turn in Tune in next week. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the new thing that Jesus came to do. God, for any of the ways that we have brought the old thing along with us, God, we, we, we repent of that. We confess that. We want to move into the new thing that Jesus came to do and came to provide and came to begin for all of us. So God, help us to stand into the brand, step into the brand new. Help us to, to embrace the simple. Help us to embrace the difficult. Help us to embrace the clear. And help us to embrace the personal that Jesus began with this whole thing that centered and revolves around him. God, thank you for the connection that you established through Jesus. And thank you that we can walk in it and that we can embrace it and that we can live in it because ultimately we embrace him. So God, we want to live for you. We want to experience the brand new that Jesus did for every single one of us. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.